You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Eric Crittenden and I, Niels Kastorblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, let me start by saying thank you for checking it out. I truly hope you find it to be different and thought-provoking and that it will spark your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed like the conversation from a couple of days ago with Jason Buck, which I thought was jam-packed with great insights from the world of volatility, as well as how we can think about building a more bulletproof portfolio, something that Eric and I will also touch on today. As you know, the aim of the podcast is to democratize the hedge fund, CTA, or quant investment world, whatever you prefer to call it. And if you want to be part of this journey, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can share these episodes, if you can rate and review them in iTunes, we greatly appreciate it. And this way, we can see that you're getting some value from our time and dedication each week to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, we will, of course, continue to do them. So with all that said, Eric, it's fantastic to have you back on the show. It's been way too long. How are you doing? And and more importantly, how are things where you are today? Glad to be back, Niels. Doing great. have nothing to complain about, and I'm looking forward to being on the show. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's jump right into it. As usual, I'm going to do my little brief market wrap, but I'm keeping it brief because we have so much that we need to dive into. But of course, the big news this week, perhaps for some, was maybe the Fed's announcement that it intends to reduce their holdings of ETFs and individual corporate notes. And selling secondary holdings can technically be defined as tightening, I guess. But in this case, the size is pretty small relative to their buying operations. In individual corporate names, they hold around 1,200 line items and about two dozen ETFs, both investment grade and high yield. It's not really expected that this unwind will have any market impact at all. The bigger issue, perhaps, is that the street has begun to speculate that the next FOMC meeting, which is on June 16th, that the Fed will raise the interest rate on the reverse repo and IOER by five basis points. And it's likely, highly likely, I guess, that it will also reset the T-bill to about the same amount. And of course, we also had the latest employment report from the US, which disappointed for a second month in a row, but maybe in fairness, there may be a lot of noise in the numbers at the moment with all these stimulus packages. In any event, both the bond market and the stock market took it as good news nevertheless. But let's talk about what has stood out for you, Eric, as you reflect maybe on the first kind of six months of the year so far, either in terms of market events or maybe performance contributions in your own portfolio. Yeah. Well, before we do that, I just wanted to, you brought up the word might be considered tightening. What do you think people who are no longer with us, people that were market professionals in the 70s and 80s, do you think that they would view that as tightening? Or have we changed the definitions of a lot of terms in the past, oh, 15 to 20 years? 
we probably have. Yeah, I wonder if people in eras past would even recognize some of the phenomenon that are going on today. Just throw that out there. What's different? So, so far this year, I guess the most surprising development or trade or theme to most market participants is the downside action in bonds. That has come as a surprise. You know, the last time you and I were on a podcast, it was a, it was a special day. It was March 23rd of 2020. Yes. Wow. What was special about that day? That was the exact low in yeah. the stock market. So that was a interesting period of time. And as interesting as that period of time was, here, fast forward to today, a lot of things have completely reversed. A lot of counterintuitive stuff, fundamental analysis, you know, traditional approaches to investing continue to be frustrated. And it just feel I, I remember when we were talking, you know, it was a little over a year ago, having this image in my mind that things are just going to be frustrating for everyone. Everyone's going to feel their maximum frustration going forward. Rules that used to work won't work. We're just in a new paradigm. And this is the kind of stuff that characterizes a shift from one paradigm to another, a regime change. And I feel like that's exactly what we've gotten. And rising interest rates, falling bond prices is exactly what people did not want to to see. And that's not what they needed. And that's exactly what they've gotten. So that, I would say, has been the biggest surprise, I guess, for the marketplace. It wasn't really a surprise for me, because I don't really have an opinion, you know, our strategy is to react in a disciplined manner rather than predict. But I would say that one is the, that's the trade that stands out so far this year. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if um, every time you and I do these shows, whether that means some kind of big reversal in the marketplace. Uh, if so, we're going to have to uh, watch out for that on Monday morning, I guess. But I had actually forgotten that it was exactly that day that we uh, last spoke. Just to comment on that maybe for one second, and that is, I think you're right that certainly a lot of people didn't want to see bond yields go up. But if, on the other hand, if you think about how low they were at the time, you kind of think, where else are they going to go? But yet we feel surprised maybe a year later that they did what they did. Yeah, it's so I've been doing this for about 24 years now. There's a couple lessons that I'm incapable of learning, evidently. And one of them is to talk to people about things they don't want to visualize in their mind. So you probably have seen that bond video that I did where I talked, I did a Monte Carlo simulation of different future bond scenarios. And that was, I think, in August or September of, of last year. And I think the 10-year yield was maybe 70 basis points or something like that. And not too many people liked it because it didn't paint an optimistic picture for bond holdings going forward. And I, I guess that's the lesson that's been difficult for me to learn is that you don't want to be early. <laughs> you want to help people build solid, durable portfolios, but you got to be careful about questioning certain asset classes too early in the cycle. Because even if you do end up being proven right later on, they still have the, the negative feelings uh, from when they first looked at your research. So I'm not sure there's a solution to that. It's just an interesting observation. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Now, before we dive into all the good and very exciting topics, I have to say the lineup is pretty amazing in my own opinion. I want to do what I also normally do, and that is just go through kind of performance status. So from the done side, it was a pretty okay, strong start to June as well for, for our trend following program. 
And after we had a break in terms of sort of sector contribution in May, grains are now back in its groove this week. So together with energies and equities, they were the most profitable sectors we had, responsible for pretty much the all the performance. And market specifics that stood out was something like soybean oil, soybeans did pretty well, unleaded gas did pretty well as the Australian spy. And then copper and uh, some of the other metals struggled a little bit, and also our short fixed income positions didn't do too well, and currencies were pretty flat. In terms of my own trend barometer, actually, it uh, closed slightly softer than last week at 45, which is pretty neutral, so nothing really spectacular to uh, report on that. And in terms of our volatility strategy, what I found most interesting, what I picked up from our volatility expert this week, was the fact that realized annualized five-day volatility of the S&P dropped to 1.38%. And this was happening during the week. And that equates to daily fluctuations of 0.08%, which incredibly low in my opinion, especially with all the uncertainty we still see around the world. And this also led the VIX to finish the week below 17, which is also below its long-term average. Performance-wise, it was an okay start to the month also for our volatility strategy. My own trend-following model, where I can be a little bit more detailed, had a good week so far, up 2.09% for the month, up 15.79% for the year. This month, all three groups, Group 1, 2, and 3, did fine. Most of the profits came from the classical trend models, 1.23%, and the other two groups were identical at up 0.43%. Equities doing the best, followed by energies and bonds, and the worst sectors this month is really the base metals, followed by currencies and a little bit in the precious metals. Single markets, not surprising. DAX, SMI, Australian SPY doing really well, top three. At the bottom, we find the uh, LME band, copper, lead, and zinc. And in terms of trading this week, we had a US holiday, of course, Monday. Once that was done with, we had some new trades to the long side in the DAX and a few of the energies. But then things got pretty quiet again, and the system only toward the end of the week added a little bit of Australian spy. In terms of the risk-to-stop measure that I look at, if everything got stopped out on Monday, it would lose 19.14%, which is up from around 15.35% a week ago. So stops are clearly not moving quite as quickly as the markets have been this week, plus a few extra new positions. System did less than 10 trades for the whole week. Now, Eric, before we move into some of the questions we had from Leone, which, by the way, I think might be the first female question we've had or question from a female we've had. So thanks for that, Leone. And also James and Jacob brought up a couple of talk topics that I think we should talk about. But I want to do something really special in the sense that I'm going to go a little bit on the deep dive here with you because I think you you are the perfect guest to have on for this conversation I don't know how to phrase it, so I'm going to do it by an example instead. So this week, I was listening to a conversation about Bitcoin, and the guest was actually another Eric Weinstein. Now, I don't know too much about Eric Weinstein other than I know he has a PhD from MIT in mathematical physics, and he's the managing director of Teal Capital, and he has a huge following on social media. But anyway, he was engaging in this conversation with two, what I could only describe as, I think, and I think it's fair, hardcore Bitcoiners. And what caught my attention in their conversation was Eric's in insistence on trying to get these crypto believers who have 
obviously, if you look at the combined market cap of, of the whole crypto space, it's probably around one and a half or two trillion dollars by now. And that's obviously something that has come from nothing, so to speak, in the last uh, decade or so, except for computer code and, and narrative. But he was challenging them to take some of their wealth and basically challenge the establishment in a different way. So what do I mean by that? So what he was saying is that instead of just keeping repeating that Bitcoin will solve everything and enjoy staying poor, he would like the Bitcoin community to take on all the economists in the world and authorities and once and for all prove that none of them can calculate inflation. Because one of the key arguments for the crypto world is that fiat money is losing its value and slowly becoming worthless. But at the same time, I think we all know that official inflation numbers do not really reflect real inflation. They're kind of artificially being held down for a number of good reasons. Now, in other words, he was looking to engage the crypto community in a really important conversation outside the normal narrative that we have gotten used to. And I think this could be really great that if we as an industry, whether we call ourselves trend followers or systematic traders, I don't really know. But, and this is where the question comes in, and that is, if we as a group could basically come up with a new area to discuss, a new narrative to bring to the table, because I feel, having done this for more than 30 years, a lot of the things, even some of the things you and I are going to talk about later on today, things that we have done now for two or three decades. So what if we could unite as an industry behind some topics and narrative where we could really move the needle? What could that be, I guess, is one of my questions. Because I would love to have those conversations instead of always having to revert back to the usual suspects. So I know it's a bit of a mouthful to kick off with, but if anyone would be up for this, I think it's you, Eric, because also I know that you spend quite a lot of time kind of thinking outside the box. So now I'm going to shut up. So Eric Weinstein is one of the best critical thinkers I've come across in, in a couple decades now. I didn't watch, I haven't seen what you're referring to yet, but I'm familiar with the argument, or at least I think I am. So, and this resonates with me. So I'm going to put words in his mouth because, again, I haven't watched it. I suspect what he's saying is, when are you going to be done talking? When are you going to be done complaining and posturing? Why don't you actually do something? Substance. Make it happen. I completely agree with assuming that's his 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 point i completely agree and it seems daunting and it looks scary and you think no it's safer to just throw my ideas out there and talk and talk in circles and circles but that's been my biggest complaint against the the cta industry is that we all feel like we're right and that eventually people are going to be fatigued into seeing it our way and we don't stop and take a look at just how hard it is to continue repeating the same thing over and waiting for the next bear market and then telling people I told you so. And I just, I have no interest in doing that. It's exhausting. It's unproductive in my opinion. And there's just, there's already enough people doing that. The world doesn't need, you know, any more people doing that. So I looked at, say, let's just do it and lead by example. An optimal portfolio, use enough trend, use enough risk control, create a template, set an example, and actually do it. And that's 
that's what we did. That's the decision that we made almost exactly two years ago. And I'll tell you, Niels, it's a lot easier. It's exponentially easier to just do it than run around screaming about it. So with respect to Eric Weinstein and the, and, and the Bitcoin guys, I, I think what he's saying is get off your lazy asses and actually do something. Show some st- substance, take it on, uh, and stop complaining. I could be wrong, but that's the impression that I get. And I've listened to some of his other podcasts in the past, and he doesn't come right out and say that. But you can infer that that's essentially what he's implying, is that, you know, don't be a coward. Actually do something. He's not a coward. He's willing to do things. Yeah. And and I have a lot of respect for what you guys have done, you know, in terms of developing these new products, because I do think you have changed the conversation and the narrative and lead by example is always a great thing. But I'm going to try and challenge you a little bit further, because in some sense, what you guys have done is to take something that we used to kind of talk about blending things together would be better than having them, you know, or looking at our industry in isolation and and all of that. And I get that. But I'm also trying to think of, and and maybe there is no good answer, and maybe there's no good answer we can think of right now, because I'm kind of, you know, jumping this at you without any warning. But what I'm thinking about is actually, you know, a different conversation. Because I think what you guys have done is you've taken a topic and a conversation and a narrative and turned it into a product and lead by example. And that's great. Lots of respect for that. But I'm trying to think of what's a different, what's a different conversation? What's a narrative? Because the frustration that I have is that we don't seem to be making a lot of progress, frankly. If you look at the AUM, at least the official AUM in the CTA world, it's falling. It's not growing. And so if we just take that as a simple gauge for, you know, are we succeeding or are we not? I don't think we are succeeding, frankly, in in trying to help people build these better and safer portfolios, which I think for, I also think, and this is going completely kind of off script, I actually think we are at an incredibly important time in the world and in the world of finance And more importantly, I think the message that you're coming out with, the message that I'm trying to get through to people, that it is also a critical time for us to be successful and to make change in in that direction. But I still think we need to up our game, both as an industry and as individuals, and think of other ways to achieve our goal, because I'm not sure that we are succeeding, as I said. So I guess my question is, like with Eric Weinstein, where he very specifically said, we know that the authorities and maybe even the maybe the economists don't know better. And and he went into some mathematical things that I is way above my pay grade about the fact that the inflation number is flawed just from something he referred to as kind of the replacement value or whatever it is. The fact that people... If if the price of rice goes up, people will just start eating spaghetti and vice versa. I mean, you can't. They, they don't take that into account in the correct way. So you can end up having artificially low inflation, which obviously works out well for people in the government because then entitlements and all that stuff doesn't go up. Stuff like that. So of course we can't quite use the same. Inflation is not necessarily our challenge and we can't necessarily go to any authority and say you're doing it wrong and this is how you should do it. So I'm trying to figure out 
what is our inflation? Meaning, if the Bitcoiners have inflation that they can attack, do we have something similar? Whether it's the 60-40 portfolio, it may well be. Who knows? Which, in a sense, you've addressed a little bit, but and we'll get into that a bit more. But I'm still trying to think of something, um, and maybe I'm being too optimistic, that, that there is something out there. But just something where we can, as an industry, say, this is why you have to forget everything you've learned so far about portfolio construction, whatever it might be, how to trade the markets. Because isn't it funny that in the last, I don't know, however many years, we've just been, you know, playing defense all the time. Maybe sometimes we get to midfield. I'm talking kind of European football terms here. But we never get to the point where we can kind of, quote-unquote, attack in the nicest possible way, of course, attack the narrative and the... Uh, investor community and really get them convinced that no, you know, we're not talking about a two or three or a five percent allocation to trend following. And because we're not talking about a two, three, or four percent allocation to trend following in a portfolio, that's where we've been that's the area we have been fighting in the in the in the last many decades. I'm talking about something that allows us to get to the 20%, 25%, 30%, and actually people you know, starting to agree with us and not just every time equity markets have gone down for 30, 40% and they say, oh yeah, I know I should have had it and let me buy it now at new all-time highs. How do we change that? Sorry, a big rant from me. It's a good overview of the same problem that's been plaguing the CTA industry for as long as I've been alive. And my answer is, it's not meaningfully different from what you've been hearing from me for the past you know couple of years and that is it's easier to just do it than it is to come up with some magic words that inspires other people i'm completely convinced that well i'll give you a scenario so if i built a pure managed futures trend program which i did a couple of years ago and i built one and i love it if i had offered that on a standalone basis to people, I would be surprised if most of them could put more than two or three, maybe 5% of their portfolio into a pure managed futures program. And I say that from experience, but if you give them, if you build something that uses enough managed futures, let's say you build something and that something has 50% managed futures in it and the other 50% are other you know, long GDP risk assets. Well, then instead of having to scratch, claw, and beg for a 5% allocation, it's actually quite easy to get a 10 or a 15% allocation for something that's using enough managed futures, but it's not pure managed futures. So you can do the algebra in your head in, in the second scenario, which seems diluted or watered down, but they're actually getting quite a bit more managed futures in the second scenario and they're happy and they're not scared of their investment committee and they're not scared of their individual investors. Whereas in the first scenario, even if you can get that 5% allocation, good luck holding on to it when the stock market's going straight up and managed futures is a drag, quote unquote, on performance. So, and this is a reoccurring theme is that I'll keep saying it over and, and we'll see if I'm right because I'm actually, we, we built Standpoint to basically do this. Do it yourself, lead by example, put it out there. 
uh, and see if it's not solving more problems than it creates. And when I look at people in our industry that have flirted with that concept in the past, I won't name names, but they've flirted with it, they've been successful. They've been successful. It makes investors happier. And at the end of the day, we're offering a service, Niels. I mean, we're in the service industry. And we have to balance the need to be pure to our ideals, uh, but also offer something that people are willing to hold on to. Because if they don't hold on to it, then it doesn't matter how much managed futures you can convince them to buy on one day. If they're not willing to hold it in the portfolio like they need to over a full market cycle, it, it's not helping anyone, them or you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that um, I appreciate the answer. I will still continue my quest to find something else we can dive into in terms of as an industry to try and take on. But I think lead by example is definitely a really cool way of, of trying to change how investors feel about what we do. Anyways, let's change our conversation a little bit now. I think I'm going to go through a couple of questions we've had in, and then we have a lot of great topics from you, Eric. So why don't we do that? And of course, ladies first, as they say, Leone, all the way from Australia. And I think it was, as you mentioned, it probably was Moritz that a while ago sent out a request from uh, with, for questions from female listeners. So applause to you for taking up the challenge. You write to us, given that you can't predict the market and what your trading profits are going to be, what sort of goals can you set for your trading business as an independent trader, what are examples of medium and long-term goals you have set, both from your experience trading your own personal funds and from your experience working with larger trading firms? Or to put in another way, once I've set up and started trading a trend-following system, what next? Eric, I'm going to let you dive into that question from Leone. Yeah, I would say that, well, I'll give you my perspective. I'm, I'm really good at short-term tasks and really good at long, long-term tasks. Where I suck is the medium term. So that's why I rely on other people. I think it turns out that in this discipline, being good at making sure that nothing's going wrong in the short term, while at the same time having, having a, an eye on the horizon, are you actually going towards where you need to be? I'm not talking about profits. I'm, I'm talking about everything. Like, is your are you, your system design? You know, the, the the regulatory environment. Like, are you doing everything in a way that's going to allow you to win this marathon? So, having those two things together are important. As an independent trader, I would I, the long term component that I was just talking about. I, I refer to that as strategy. So, you're going to build something. And your person that you're going to build a system, you're going to have entries, you're going to have exits, you're going to have risk controls, you're going to you're going to select your markets, and you're going to do all that before you start trading. And your personality and your biases are all going to show up in that system, right? And you're going to need to run that. But I consider that the strategy and and all the stuff that went into creating the system as part of that long term goal, meaning that the quality of those inputs are going to determine whether you make it in the end or not. Right. The other thing that matters, though, is do you have the discipline and the work ethic to make it go on a day to day basis? You know, getting up early in the morning, being sober, being alert, doing the math, doing the reconciliations, placing the trades, doing all those things. You need both at the same time. So, short term goals are very different than long term goals. 
And and I keep skipping the medium term because I rely on my other partners at Standpoint to do that part. And they yell at me and make sure those things get done. But it's hard to answer that question because it's such a personal thing. You know, it's for, for me, I know if I'm not meeting my goals because immediately people will start screaming at me internally. So those goals are going to get met. For an individual, I would just try to get cognitively comfortable with the long-term vision and then pick a short-term process that is accretive to that is going to help you meet that long-term vision and then figure out what your objectives and goals need to be in order to make that happen. It's hard for me to answer that for an individual. So if I was trading individually, it would be for myself and I wasn't running standpoint, you know, it would be kind of what I described. You know, you wake up early, you double check all your data, you run your systems, you do a sanity check on the systems, you place all your trades, the fills come back, you check them against prevailing market prices, you do the accounting report, you tie it off, and then you do the rest of your stuff, your database maintenance, and then you you finish up for the day. And that's pretty easy to keep track of whether you're doing a good job or not. So I'm not sure if that's exactly the question she was asking, but given sure. what you said. No, I think there's a lot of uh, value in that. For you, Leone, I would just um, maybe add something very short, and that is to say, if you think about yourself as an independent trader, the way I would look at it is just to, you know, more focus on, you know, one, getting super comfortable with your system so that you would always stick with it. I think that's really important. And then the second thing would be, in long term, if you decided you want to stay as an independent trader, how can I make my system better? you know, and do whatever research you need to do on top of all the daily routines that Eric just outlined. And the other thing I would think of is if you think that this will turn into a business, you want to create a business, then I would at some point at least think about whether you are the right person to build that business. Because I think a lot of problems starts when you have success maybe in trading and you think, okay, well, I can easily shift then and also build a business on top of that. But frankly, a lot of the people that I've seen being successful in this industry, the trader wasn't the guy building the the business. It's not the same person. So just think about that and think about what you enjoy doing because I can assure you none of them will be fun all the time. So you might as well pick the one where you get most enjoyment from most of the time, I guess. So let's move on. A question from James in the UK. So now we're back in Europe here. Thanks for your insights each week. Great content. I've just discovered the podcast and I'm learning lots. I have a few questions, if I may, please. In your own personal trading strategy, you mentioned you have fast and slow systems. That's probably he's referring to my trend following model here. I wonder when calculating position size of trades, if you use combined total equity of both or do you treat them as completely separate entities. Uh, so let me just deal with that one first, James. No, the models themselves form part of an overall system. So you always look at uh, whatever risk allocation you give to a model, you always have to, or at least I do, I tie it back to what's the overall AUM of the strategy, so to speak. So I'm not trying to create separate entities. I just want to have different kinds of trend-following models You know, at the same time, basically trading at the same time. So there, it... It's very important just to think about it as a as one strategy, but the inside that you have a few different components. And then how much in percentage terms should a typical retail investor allocate into trend-following strategies? So I don't know if you mean here in terms of risk per trade or whether you mean how much should a retail investor allocate of its to- of, of their total portfolio to trend-following because that ties into the discussion Eric and I had just a few minutes ago. We feel 
that trend following actually needs to be a much bigger proportion of your overall portfolio. And actually, just to tell you a little bit of insight here, James, I interviewed three of the leading consultants, the biggest consultants in the world, dealing with all the large institutional investors, you know, pretty much globally. And this is a few years back. And what they told me before, maybe it's in the recording, I'm not sure, but what they told me before or in the recording was that when they go out to their clients and they have done their research, the allocation to trend following that they get from their research is much, much higher than what ends up being implemented because the investors really can't do it even though all the evidence suggests that you should. And this is exactly what Eric has done. He has built a firm where actually... You know, not that it's a specific percentage when you do this research, but at least it's significantly closer to 50% than it is to 5% if you want to have a, a, a quote-unquote an optimal portfolio. So I don't know if this answers your question, James, but I hope it does. And then you ask if I can recommend or if we can recommend a CTA comparison site. Uh, and I would just say the one I know that's free if you register is IASG.com. That seems pretty good. So anyway, Eric, feel free to jump in here if you have any thoughts or comments to those questions from James. Autumn Gold is another website that has a comprehensive database of CTAs and the Barclay Group as well. Yeah, cool. All right, the final question before we jump into your topics, Eric, is... It's a comment that came through Twitter from two of the people who certainly we follow as well, and it's called Jacob and Sam. And I think this came out from last week's conversation with Rob, where he told the story about how he have now included Bitcoin in his portfolio. And he uh, told his story about how he got his, he had his long signal and he was being very disciplined about it. So he actually just incorporated into the portfolio, not trying to think about where the level of Bitcoin was. And I think it was around 58,000 when he bought his, his first Bitcoin. Anyways, that's not really the question. The question that I think Jacob brought is, and, and I'm quoting now, you say, Jacob, I don't understand, and maybe you've thought about this, Eric, if you at some point are going to include Bitcoin futures at least. Jacob writes, I don't understand how anyone can decide to add extreme volatile Bitcoin futures to his her portfolio, considering there is a 48-hour window where the market is still trading, but futures contracts are not, and therefore there's, you have no chance of having, say, a stop loss in the market. So maybe I'll just ask you, Eric, on your thoughts about this when you have a market like Bitcoin and where the futures contracts doesn't trade over the weekend, is that something that would prevent you from putting it into a portfolio? The fact that the spot market's trading and the futures market yeah. does so not. So you could essentially have a massive gap from Friday to Monday, I guess, is what the risk is. Well, my answer is no. And I'll tell you why. You know, Copper doesn't have an actively uh, traded uh, weekend session and it can have a huge gap. You know, crude oil, anything can have a huge gap. The, the intrinsic value is moving around over the weekend, whether there's a, an active spot cash market for it or not. So I don't really understand that. Now, if you have some sort of a spread where you're arbing the mm. cash versus the future, futures contract, then yes. But that's if that's not the case, then by that logic, any market that doesn't trade 24-7, including holidays and weekends, you should be kicking out of your portfolio. So, Yeah, I when I thought about the question, I actually got to that conclusion myself as well, in the sense that I thought, 
Well, there's actually quite a few markets where you only trade for a few hours, and certainly in the commodities, where you only really trade for a few hours every day. So you have this constant gap risk. I know maybe Bitcoin can be a little bit extreme, but again, as we always say, if you size it appropriately to its volatility, then you shouldn't really end up in a situation where you're going to lose or, or make more than what you could reasonably expect. So I hope that helps Jacob and Sam in terms of our view on that. It doesn't mean that's, yeah, I guess since both Moritz and Jerry and Rob trades the futures, then obviously they are not concerned about that weekend risk either. Now we get to some exciting stuff, which are topics that Eric brought up. So I'm not entirely sure where we're going to go with this. I have the headline. So I think, Eric, you're going to uh, fill in the blank. But the first section that you mentioned is kind of trend following reframed. Tell me a little bit about that and where we are going with this. Yeah, it's it, it, it's a reoccurring theme with me, but consistency is key. <laughs> so I just wanted to share with you my observation. So when we set out to start Standpoint a few years ago, we tried a couple of different approaches in talking to people, meeting people, g- generating interest and getting feedback. And once again, I, I experienced this phenomenon that I don't, there's no name for the phenomenon yet, but maybe we'll come up with, with one on this podcast. So if I approach a person a pragmatic financial advisor, and I describe trend following, and I describe buying you know, 52-week highs and stop losses and risk controls and trading crude and silver and all this stuff. They scrunch up their eyebrows. You know, they're, they, they feel like that there's a salesman at the door trying to sell them steak knives. And you know, they're just, you're off to a bad start, a really bad start. And it's, there's so many obstacles that you have to overcome you know, because they're like, oh, it's derivatives, it's futures, it's risky, it's different, blah, blah, blah. If you take a different, if you reframe it though, and you start at the end rather than the beginning, and you ask them, you know, what's the biggest concern in your portfolio over the next 10 years? What's the biggest concern for your investors? And you start working backwards and you reframe this thing into, well, what if there was something that could generate? Uh, risk premia in an inflationary environment? What if that something also had the kind of convexity where generally it does reasonably well in, in deflationary shocks? Well, all of a sudden, you know, it go, it's just, it's the exact opposite. It's like the inverse image of what I was talking about before, yet it's the same thing. So it's just another one of those unforced errors, I think, that Trend followers are just kind of hardwired to go in preaching the gospel of discipline and stop losses and take every trade and sample size and all these things that are 100% true. They're a great way to sell another CTA, you know, to get another CTA to pat you on the back and say that I totally agree with that. A great way. And engineers love it too. The problem is clients don't. So the case I'm making is that you can reframe trend following in a way that is empathetic to your end user. And I think it could create a win-win for everyone. So, and I'm curious, Niels, you've been doing this a long time and you're very aware. I can see you nodding your head. Where have I gone wrong? What am I missing? Why hasn't the industry picked up 
on this more? Or is it that some people have? You've seen some CTAs kind of transition into something bigger than a CTA, and they were very successful at doing that. And maybe you know the rest of us are just missing the boat. I'm not sure. What do you think? Well, I think it very much depends on the audience, right? And who you're talking to. I think in my case, I guess, so So in my universe really is divided very much between kind of your high net worth individual who I definitely think needs this in their portfolio. And then the kind of the institutional uh, investors where they're really the groups that I tend to speak to, they're only there to pick managers. They're not, not sometimes not even there to kind of have the responsibility of the overall strategy. They're given a slice of the overall portfolio and they just need to fill out the blanks and find the managers. So that changes the conversation. I think what what has worked for me personally, I would say with the professional people who quote unquote understand trend following, understand what we do, where you don't have to explain the efficient frontier and, and all of that stuff. But where it comes down to because this is another thing that is so trivial, and that is we always ask, so how are you different, right? Or, or actually, they tend to ask, okay, so how different are you? But maybe we should really ask, how are you different, right? So so what I found was, and now I'm giving all my trade secrets away here, everybody. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. What I found was, and this was a little bit by coincidence when I joined Don, and that is the research or the journey that Don had been on since pretty much year 2000, but manifesting in 2006 with a major upgrade to the model and 2013. What I found was that in 2013, the two key components that we had discovered and improved in terms of the model actually addressed the two weaknesses that has always been the case within trend following. And that is, how do you deal with reversals? How do you deal with non-trending environments? So that became my story. My story is really that I am humbly aware that there are some weaknesses, some really big weaknesses within trend following. I think, of course, that goes for all strategies. But trend following, we know there are some specific weaknesses. And then I basically tried to tie that back to see, let me show you how we've dealt with those. And you can kind of do that as in visually, you can do that. But conceptually, if we think overall that people, they, they wouldn't be talking to me in the first place if they didn't think that trend following had something to offer. So what I need to convince them, of course, is that why choosing us would be a good idea. And in that sense, I feel that I have to be able to talk about how we deal with some of the challenges we face as trend followers, because we all face them. So you might as well come clean and say, this is how we think about the problem. This is what we've done to address them. So that's kind of the institutional side. I want to be very super laser focused on the on that. Other people might use other areas. It could be, oh, but we trade 350 markets, etc. Whatever their point they want to make is, right? Because that could also be what they feel is overcoming some of the challenges of trend following. Anyways, in, in terms of the individual investors, I do think it is about, and this is something that maybe we'll come to a little bit later as well, but I, I wrote about it to my clients and prospects this weekend, actually, and it's not new whatsoever, but it's kind of what I think makes a lot of sense to remind people of, and that is that 
usually people look at, at their investment universe and they look for things that look safe and looks like it's performing well. And that leads them to the sharp ratio. And so they end up looking for things that has a sharp, a high sharp ratio. Now we all, not I couldn't say that, I shouldn't say, a lot of people know that something that had a really high sharp ratio of something like 4.79 in 1998 was called long-term capital. Looked great. Everybody loved it. Everybody wanted to invest with them. And a few months later, it blew up and almost took down the US financial system with it. So, so of course, this is where the conundrum is that on one side, this is what investors want. And we need to find a way for them to explain to them that this might be a dangerous game. And the worst thing you can do is to find 10 different investments with a high sharp ratio and put them together because they all had a high sharp ratio, thinking that must be a bulletproof portfolio because look at all that high sharp ratio you have. So, so again, it's an educational journey trying to visualize, trying to explain why something that has a seemingly inferior sharp ratio doesn't look great, how that actually can lead to your overall portfolio becoming better and actually the overall portfolio, which is what the sharp ratio was designed for, not for individual line items, but for the overall portfolio, how that actually makes much more sense if you find something that in trend following's case has a low correlation, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I think it's two different approaches. I've completely forgotten your initial question here, Eric, but it's two different approaches in terms of dealing with it's the audience that I think that decides how we try and move them a little bit closer to understanding why they need this in the portfolio. And what we started out our conversation with today was me reaching out to you and saying, yes, this is what we need to do, but we're using things we've been using for the last two, three decades. Is there something new? Because I really feel I need something new to talk about, but that's another story. <laughs> Yeah, they, there are no new magic words I'm aware of. You'll hear me talk about reframing over and over. So, and yeah, you and I are talking to different audiences. So I'm not going after institutional money. I don't want their money. I don't want to do business with them because of what you said and that they're just looking to fill very specific niches. And I'm trying to solve the portfolio problem for investors over a 5, 10, 20 year period and that they just don't have an interest in that. They're looking for a specific a specialist to fill one particular hole and you can't be both at the same time. Right. Those are just two different disciplines. So when I'm talking to individual investors and financial advisors, if I come at them with trend following and models and stop losses and whatnot, it's a disaster. But if I reframe it and say, how would you feel about something that is conscious about how much risk it's taking? and proactively establishes a risk budget and has a good chance of honoring that risk budget should we go into a terrible environment. Everyone gives a thumbs up. And if I say, well, if in addition to that, it's diversified globally across truly different asset classes, not just a bunch of stocks that are all highly correlated, but agricultural products, you know, currency-related things, different sovereign bonds, you get a thumbs up, right? And then as well, it's the same thing. It's the same thing, but you get a completely different reaction from people. So, And that's on us because we have the power to control the framing of the same thing. 
So we should do a better job of that. And that's my only point about there, there are no magic words, but you can minimize the number of um, unforced errors and at least frame the stuff in a way such that it has a chance. And the beautiful thing about what you do, Eric, in doing that is actually you also now end up quote unquote, going after the big slice of the pie. We focus on the little 5% sliver or 2% sliver, and we compete fiercely against all our friendly rivals, of course, right? What you're doing, and I think this will work really well for you over time, is of course, you are now opening yourself up to, you know, a much bigger pool of opportunity, let's call it that. Okay, let's move on to the next topic that you brought up. And maybe this is Related, not related, I'm going to let you completely lead with this. And the topic is, trend following is misunderstood. So again, I'm very excited to see where we're going with this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think trend following is terribly misunderstood. Uh, and it's along the same lines of what we've been talking about. I hated the concept of trend following when I was younger. I thought it was very silly. It's the stereotype, the concept in your mind of chasing trends, chasing performance. You know, by people, when they hear trend following, they think, oh, you're just going to buy at the top. You know, you're buying Bitcoin at 50,000 rather than 5,000. It's terribly misunderstood. And again, that's the motivation for reframing. Instead of using phrases that are already loaded and have a negative connotation, just talk about what it is, what it does. Uh, and what it offers. What are the attributes of a trend-following program? And it's what we just talked about. Global diversification, the ability to do well when risk assets are doing poorly, the ability to not get stuck or buried in a 30-year bear market, the ability to not be on the wrong side of real rates of return in the fixed income market, the kind of stuff that your portfolio needs. Yeah, I think... So trend following is misunderstood in a lot of ways. That's one. The other one, though, is my issue is there's a sustainable risk premium associated with trend following. And you and I have talked about this several times in the past. Trend followers essentially provide liquidity to hedgers. And they're the only group of people that are comfortable and can be relied upon to do that in a consistent manner. And that's valuable to the marketplace. And the trend followers should be able to collect a risk premium. Now, it's going to be time varying. Sometimes it'll be really highly positive like it was in the 70s. And like any other line of business or sector, you're going to have a lost decade where there's a shakeout phase. And I think we went through that from basically 2011 until October of last year. That was the shakeout phase, in my opinion. And you saw a lot of trend followers say, yeah, I'm going to go do something else in my life. This is too hard. And we could be on the verge of another golden era or something in between. You know, there's no way to know. But trend following, so there's those two things I just mentioned. And then there's my own personal beliefs. I So many of my peers talk about alpha and they talk about the inefficiencies that they're capturing. And I don't believe any of that. I don't think trend following is about alpha or inefficiencies. It's about that risk premium I was talking about. I'm not saying there isn't alpha. There is. I just don't think it's trustworthy. It's moving around. It's changing. It's here today, gone tomorrow. And it's very limited in scope, meaning you can't scale a business around these tiny alphas that I see floating around that are very seductive looking. But when I'm being objective and I say, would I want to build a business around chasing those tiny alphas around? No, not for me. Now, there's people out there smarter than me with better computers. Maybe they can do something with it, but I'm not excited about that business opportunity at all. And then on the inefficiency side, I, I this one has flabbergasted me for many years. I do not know why a single person in the world gets excited about exploiting inefficiencies because they're inefficiencies. They're temporary. They go away. 
as markets mature and liquidity comes up, the inefficiencies go away. So why would you build a business around something that you know is going to go away? And the better you are at harvesting it, the, the, the harder it becomes and it goes away. And if you're seeing it, everyone else is seeing it too. So why would people want to pursue that? It's not scalable. So I look at it and say, well, the risk premiums I'm talking about, providing liquidity to hedgers in their moment of need by being the market of last resort, step up and, and, and buy those uptrends and short sell those downtrends and manage your risk, that only gets better, at least the opportunity. Now, the signal to noise comes down as the market matures, but the opportunity to scale that, because it's a win-win, you know, the hedgers win, you win, everyone wins. So you've just basically found a spot in the ecosystem where you can contribute to the ecosystem and it actually gets healthier and you make money. That's far more exciting to me than alpha or inefficiency. So, and I call that concept risk transfer and it should be its own asset class. There's a, there's a, someday go and read about Omega. It started to become popular a long time ago. And then for some reason, the academics didn't pick up on it. But risk transfer and Omega, for the most part, explain the premiums that trend followers collect. And I'm talking about the specific, specifically the sustainable risk premiums that trend followers collect in the space. And I think if people spent some time thinking about that and reading through it, they'd be a lot more comfortable with trend following. And the academics in particular, I'm really disappointed in them because it's pretty clear to me that they just missed this sustainable risk premium. And it should be a risk premium that they're all promoting. In fact, if you think about this, if you and I went out and convinced 50 CTAs to basically shut down their CTA and just bring all the trading into the corporate entity and then go public, IPO, and their stock price became their equity curve, and we got them all into a sector. We created a new sector, and S&P and uh, Dow Jones accepted our new sector. So you had Dunn and all these other CTAs and their, their common stocks. What do you think all those mean variance optimizers would say once this new sector in the equity space, all those CTA returns? You'd, CTAs would be getting the highest allocations of any sector because they would have great returns, reasonable vol, and they'd be the most uncorrelated. And so what would the academics say then? Exactly. And I think this is maybe, and now I'm going to be a little bit unkind, perhaps, in some people's ears, because I think sometimes we can make our conversation a bit too academic in general. So the way I think about, when I think about trend following and when I think about why people would even doubt that it works is just to say, pick any chart in your on your desktop or your chart book or whatever it is, show it to me. And tell me that there are no trends here, except if they pick like, you know, one year T-bills for the last five years. Of course, there is no trend. But generally speaking, you can't pick a market that hasn't moved in the last 50 years and doesn't continue to move in the last 50 years. So so here's, I'm going to go a little bit off script again in terms of my own kind of thinking, but hear me out on this one and see if you can relate to this. I think to some extent, we live in a world where change in general is the enemy. And so if you have a trading strategy that thrives on change, is that going to be making it less popular than things that thrive on stability and all mean reversion, whatever it might be? And, and this is hard to prove in any way, shape or form because this is kind of how maybe we as people see the world. What are we... You know, I think, and again, I haven't thought 
So I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't thought this through sort of any great detail, but you know, from a behavioral point of view, I think most humans would say that we're not comfortable with change. We prefer things to be as they are. We feel more cer- certain. We feel more comfortable with things that we know how they are. So to embrace a strategy that is based on things changing, and maybe it's a bit of a stretch here, but maybe there is a little bit of kind of an unconscious voice in our head saying, no, it doesn't really appeal to me because it's just too, you know, it's volatile, right? It changes all the time. It can be up 5% one month and down 6% the next. It doesn't feel nice. So I don't know, but I do feel that there is there is some kind of link between the fact that we, and, and there's only very few strategies that really thrive from kind of divergent market behavior compared to the, you know, massive amount of strategies that are Convergent in nature and prefer stability. So, so I don't know. But anyways, back to this point about, you know, why is it that it's so difficult for people when they can see the evidence in front of them that markets do move, at least? Why is it so much of a stretch that you should have a strategy in your portfolio that actually enjoys markets that move? Well, the the lesson is in there. I'm glad you brought that up. It reminds me of something I did a long time ago. I think it was back in 2012, where I built a little computer program where I would allow people to choose any market, cocoa, cotton, silver, whatever, and then hit a button and see the lifetime returns of trend following on that market. Because a lot of people were telling me, right, I just don't see any trends. These markets, they, you know, they don't look like Intel. They don't look like Tesla. They don't look like these things that have big trends. So how can you possibly make any money? And I don't, I'm not convinced. So I built this little simulator and they could just, you know, hit a button and they could look at the lifetime returns. I think there was 120 different futures markets. And some of them started in 1964. Mm-hmm. Some of them started in 2010, but they could just look at, objectively at the lifetime trend following returns. There was only one market that didn't have a positive lifetime return. It was one of the Cocos. I don't remember which one, (laughs) London Cocoa or Nymex. Everything else had a positive lifetime return. And I thought, Niels, that this would be very persuasive. But all it did was frustrate people. And it wasn't compelling. I guess it was compelling, but at frustrating them, not making them more comfortable. So the lesson is there for us to learn. And that is there's no amount of data that you can use to make people cognitively comfortable with something that is the exact opposite of how they're wired. And I say that intentionally. If you look at a well-designed medium-term global trend-following program, and you look at all the different components, the entry, the exit, the risk budgeting, when you're leveraging up, when you're leveraging down, every single element is basically the exact opposite of what the, your human instinct would tell you to do. Yeah. So if you just hired a bunch of frat boys from a party school and you put them on a trade desk and you gave up each of them 10 million bucks, I'm willing to bet that they're going to do pretty much the opposite of what a well-designed medium-term trend-following system would do. So here's the thing. Are there magic words that we can say to people to get them to feel differently about things that are hardwired into their psychology? The answer is maybe in the movies, maybe on a one-off, but generally speaking, no, that's hardwired into their psychology. So maybe we should stop pushing the, the fulcrum point over onto their side of the table and instead move it onto our side of the table and say, what can we do? 
to actually make this easier, to create some overlap where we can do business that creates a win-win for them and us. And it's that's what I'm trying to do. Sure. It's not words, it's actions. Yeah, no, and I get that. And maybe to the, and maybe we'll talk about this as well later today, maybe the next iteration is to go, as we've also seen from some of our friends in the industry, to go one step further and just build that 100-year portfolio where everything is taken care of. You don't need to worry at all. We'll see about that. I've got something I want to bring up with you, but before that, there are still a couple of points and, and you can just go as long as or short you want in terms of the commentary. But you did have another point where you said trend following on a single asset class leads to disappointment and failure, which is something I completely agree with and often refer to here. Tell me where we're going with this. Yeah, so oftentimes people that become intrigued with trend following feel like, oh, I want to go test it out. So I'll dabble a little bit. I'll try it out on on my stocks or I'll try it out on my muni bonds or something like that. And that's a really bad idea. The same way if you were running a venture capital firm or you knew someone who was running a venture capital firm and you said, oh, you know what? I see what they're doing and they've made a lot of money. I'm going to try that out. I'm going to pick one company, one startup, and I'm going to put half a million bucks in this startup. And if it works out, then venture capital is good. If it doesn't work out, then venture capital is bad. Trend following on futures in a diversified manner, what a lot of people don't realize until they do it for a while, is that 80% of your returns come from 20% of the markets in any two, three, five-year window. It's very lumping. And generally speaking, it ends up coming from the markets that you would not have predicted if you go back in time and you look forward, I speak from experience, a couple decades of experience. It's never the markets that everyone's looking, or not never, but very rarely do the big profitable trend moves come from the markets that everyone said, oh, that market's going to have a big move. It's It just comes out of left field. And if you think about it, that's right. That's the way markets work. Supply, demand, imbalances. Like you can't, not everyone can finish in a tie for first place. You know, it's it, it doesn't work that way. So, when you choose to dabble and just test it out on one market, you're going to suffer from that phenomenon where it's likely that you just don't understand that the trend following profits come from the minority of markets. It's usually the ones that you're not you know, prepared for. The other thing is trend following is so difficult for people to stick with because after a trend reversal, when you close your position out, Oftentimes, there's a there's another mini reversal or some sort of a recovery period that you miss out on, and psychologically, that's just a deal breaker for most people. It's just they can't deal with it, you know. Like in during the COVID correction, uh, a lot of trend followers got stopped out of their equities, and then they ended up going short, and then they were short during the rally, and they closed that out, and then they watched the market go up for months and months. There's something special about that moment in time that's super dangerous for the trend follower. At that moment in time, during the recovery, investors have never been more laser-focused on what's going on in their portfolio. That's when they pay attention the most because they've suffered a loss and they're concerned and they see everyone else getting back to break even, making money, and they really, at that moment in time, want to make money as quickly as possible to get back to a new high-water mark to feel like they're not a failure. If you're not making money during that period of time, in a lot of cases, it doesn't matter how good of a job you did six months ago or six months from now, they're time stamping it and in their mind making a decision that something's going wrong here because you're not making money and everyone else at the country club is. So 
that's the problem. Uh, it's one of the problems with trend following on a single asset class. Now, if you've got a diversified portfolio, you could be making a boatload of money in some other asset class that they're not laser focused on. It could be currencies, it could be energies, it could be grains, something else. So it's pretty easy to see if you run simulations and then just pull different asset classes out. And it's like once you lose enough of the diversification, it goes from being something great to something that you really don't want to have anything to do with. So trend falling on a single asset class, really bad idea. And you don't want to learn with your own money that way. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more than with that. No way to know ahead of time which ones. I guess we kind of covered that maybe already. That was one of the points. Or is that not what you meant with that? Yeah, it's just it, like VC firms. You yeah. know, those guys would tell you that. Look, you know, ninety percent of these don't work out. Ten okay. percent do. If we knew which ten percent would, instead of making twenty percent annualized returns, we'd be making two hundred percent annualized returns. And you don't see us doing that. So not quite. Okay. So before I go to my point, I have here something called economic, social, political similarities between now and the late nineteen sixties. Where are we heading with that title? Yeah, I think it's our job, you know, if we're managing other people's money to be conscious of what can happen. You know, a, a year ago when you and I talked, we talked about the difference between people being surprised and people just being disappointed because they were unprepared. Mm-hmm. You know, no, nobody was surprised that the stock market could go down 30%. No one was surprised that we could have a pandemic. Those weren't surprises. Everyone knew that was possible. But they were still horrified and scared and anxious because they've lost money because they weren't prepared, mentally prepared for that. So the similarities between the late 60s, early 70s and what's going on today is important because I think it lends credibility to analyzing the economic environment of the 1970s. And I'm amazed at how many people will start their analysis in the year 2000 or in the year 1990. And and then a few people will go back to 1980 Well, when you do that, you're leaving out what is arguably the most important quadrant of an economic environment, and that is the stagflationary era of the 70s. That's where wealth destruction actually takes place. So why would you leave that out? Well, I think I know why, because it makes stocks and bonds look terrible. It was a 14-year flat period with a couple of 40 to 50% drawdowns. Massive, you know, the real returns were atrocious. Inflation was, you know, 8, 12, 14% along the way, taxes were high. So I think I understand why people leave that out. But I don't think you should. In order to set realistic expectations, especially now with all the imbalances and the unfunded liabilities and everything else that's going on in the world, it's like, well, it's not going to surprise me at all if we get something similar to the 1970s. In fact, I would argue that's kind of what you need to create some balance in the world. You know, it can't just, it's not alchemy. You can't just keep printing money growing deficits, and have this the whole thing work out. I mean, it's got to balance out somewhere, and I think that's probably in the form of negative real yields for an extended period of time, and that's what we had in the 70s. So on top of that, there's some really eerie parallels with respect to, you know, we have social unrest. We have, you know, I mean, Joe Biden, in a sense, is a lot like Jimmy Carter. <laughs> Actually, looks like the guy. The policies, you know, the protectionism. I just see a lot of parallels between what was going on then and what's going on now. And rather than complain about it and get on Facebook and post and all these unproductive things, just take action. Build yourself a durable, all-weather, global portfolio and run it with discipline and accept what the market's willing to bear. Like, that's actually a solution. 
I can't guarantee it's going to work out great, but it is a solution to being responsible that's practical and actually moves the needle. It does something rather than complaining about it. So I don't know if that resonates with you or other people, but it's just I feel strongly about it as I like to put it out there. Yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of interesting because it somewhat sort of ties into what I was going to share with you. This is not necessarily a question, but I think it might lead to some discussion between the two of us that we can kind of dive into because, again, it relates to kind of portfolio construction. But I was out um, for a walk this morning and I was listening to Jim Grant's latest podcast on his, I think it's called the Yield Current Yield Podcast. He's obviously a legend in that space. And the guest he had on was a guy from GMO, so one of the largest managers in the world, Peter Chiapolini, I think was his name. And he made some interesting observations, you know, which I think we can kind of use as well. So one thing that I found very interesting was that he said something along these lines, and I'm not, I'm quoting him and I'm not quoting him. This is kind of a little bit my version of it. He said something along the lines where he said, we can track the performance of the 60-40 portfolio going back to year 1900. And interesting enough, from 1900 to about 2020, so end of last year, the 60-40 portfolio basically delivered a 5% real return. So for pension plans, endowments, and individual investors, they can look at this his history in support of their decision to invest in the 60-40 portfolio. The problem, though, is that it's a 120-year time horizon, so much longer than any of us will be active investors. No one has 120 years horizon, and what gets lost in the shovel is that the 64 portfolio can have and has experienced lost decades, meaning that even if you had held it for 10 years, you would still have lost money. And then I went to their website and I found a paper from last year where they did a chart and sort of by just by visualizing the chart, of this 60-40 portfolio, I found one, two, three, four, five, six periods where definitely there was a negative or nil return, as you were alluding to. And so the periods were 1900 to 1920. So I think it was 19 years on their chart. So 19 years, no return in the 60-40 portfolio. Then from what 1929 to 1942, another pretty extended period, 1947 to 1954, followed by 1964 to 1974, from 77 to 84, and from 2000 to 2010, which is not that long ago, really. It's just that we've forgotten about it. So I think your point is absolutely spot on, that there are definitely things we should really study and learn from history, even though it's not going to play out exactly the same way. And then he goes on to say something which I thought was, it's just a really great line. And he says... Most of these periods started with expensive stocks or bonds, but today we have both. And I thought, yes, that's exactly right. Why are people not seeing that? Why are they still invested in the 60-40 portfolio at this level? Crazy. So let me pretend to be the investor here for a moment. Let me show some empathy to them. So I'm an investor. So what? I get it. There's risk. Right now, in my mind, I'm thinking alternative investments are even worse than bonds and definitely worse than stocks. So why are you telling me this? That's yeah. what they think. That's what they think. And the reason is because their experience with alternatives has been horrible because they buy high and they sell low. Mm. And uh, there's a lot of garbage alternative products in the world too. So 
that's their reality and that's the the root cause of their skepticism and it's uncomfortable you're asking them to do something that's uncomfortable and do something different than what the media tells them different from what their friends and peers are doing and and we're not making it easy for them we try to educate them but the truth is if i went to i don't know a specialized doctor that specialized in say thyroids say i had a thyroid issue and he or she spent, you know, four hours educating me on the microbiology of thyroids. It's actually not helping me. None of this is sinking in. I've got a job. I've got people I answer to. And, you know, anatomy and microbiology and the rest of the stuff, it's like, I, it, it takes years to become an expert before you have any wisdom in an industry. So it's kind of silly to think that we're actually educating people that are already working 60 hours a week in a topic that they're not interested in. So that's what I mean when I say do it. You know, actually, instead of talking about it, actually do it, make it available. Yeah. And we'll see if the marketplace agrees with me. Yeah, no, true. Um, maybe just a kind of spur of the moment thought here. And that is, in some way, what I think you're saying, or at least that's how it, I, I interpret it, is that to some extent, the powers to be, whether it's Wall Street or whatever street it is, but people who have a an interest in the 60-40 continuing forever, probably the mutual fund companies and other companies in that area, that they are so powerful that they will control this to a point where investors will never really be tempted to go too far outside of that. And most people won't even step outside of it, right? So that that. So if I'm just thinking sort of thinking outside uh, the box, so to speak, it kind of reminds me a little bit about the crypto side. Not that I'm not a crypto guy, but I follow it. But I think they have taken on kind of the powers to be when they started their journey and say, no, no, I know we've had money for thousands of years or gold or whatever it might be, but there is a different way. It'll take time for sure. And it's not going to be pretty. But there is something here and and we're definitely going to take on, you know, whoever is trying to argue that you can't change things. We believe we can. This is not very elegantly said, but it does remind me a little bit of that, that, that you're up against some really strong, enormous forces and the fight pretty much looks like you're going to lose. But if you don't give up and you keep fighting the good fight, maybe at some point we can be successful in changing this mindset and changing this framework that everybody seems to come back to, and that is, you need stocks, you need bonds, you don't really need anything else. It's fair. I mean, I, I words like fight, they do resonate with me. But I, I think what at least the decision we've made is to try to use aikido rather than you know muay thai or, or jujitsu. And aikido means you know, it's more cooperative. In that, I'm not against stocks, not at all. I'm just for the optimal portfolio. And if I if we stripped away all the labels and we just looked at the global liquidity that's available and I sat down, you know, 100 CFAs that are fir- firmly indoctrinated into the stocks and bonds only camp. But if I stripped away all the labels and they got to work on the data and they were building the optimal portfolio, they'd be putting anywhere from 35 to 50 percent in managed futures trend. And I'll go back to the the scenario we talked about earlier, where if all these CTAs just basically became common stocks and IPO'd, they'd be the most popular sector in the stock market because it's the best diversified. So it, it's funny to me that I don't 
we don't need to be enemies. I'm not trying to win a, a war here, and I'm not trying to create conflict. I'm just trying to help people that want a more optimal portfolio, a more durable portfolio to actually get it. And um, that's what you guys have been doing for you know 40 years. And, and that's fantastic. I'm just trying to do it in a way that's available to me as a newer entrant. You know, I can't become a pure CTA and go after that institutional money. Like that was the 1980s and 90s thing. And those relationships extend to today, but there's no room. Like when people say managed futures, trend following is crowded, they're talking about that particular niche where sure. you guys are in there competing with those guys and doing well. For new people, we need to use a blue ocean strategy and go find people that would benefit from this that haven't historically had access. I think you use the word democratize. That's all we're trying to do. And uh, I think this is the way to do it is, is not be adversarial. I like having, I mean, heck, I've got a lot of money in stocks. And uh, I'm not a big fan of bonds, but that's only because the real yields are deeply negative and it makes not a lot of sense. But still, with the idle money, we'll pick up the risk-free rate of return. So it's not an adversarial relationship to me. I'm just trying to give people the power to build a portfolio that is safer and more durable and can handle a market like the 1970s if that's what they want to do. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely well put. And I think you're absolutely right. And actually, I think Bitcoiners, some at least Bitcoiners, are coming to the conclusion that, yeah, maybe Bitcoin won't ever replace fiat. Maybe they just live side by side. And I think certainly I agree with you. In, in our industry, we it's not like everybody could invest in trend following and not have stocks and bonds because we wouldn't be able to handle that very effectively if the AUM, you know, had that kind of inflows. Anyways, I'm going to go through a couple of topics here and you can decide which one you want to spend uh, time on because I'm being mindful of our time already today. So you have something about advisors being a little bit more open to investments, not just stocks and bonds. You have something about bonds being a slow motion train wreck, as you put it. You have the all-weather approach versus pure trend. I think we've probably talked about that already, maybe. And then you have open interest around the globe to find probably the liquid markets you should trade, I would imagine. And then you have this question, was Robert Lindner or Dr. Lindner right? And for people who don't know that, Dr. Lindner wrote a paper in 1983 that essentially is still a paper that we, or at least a concept that we refer back to about the uh, efficient frontier and how adding managed futures to a portfolio of stocks and bonds actually does improve your overall return and reduces your risk. So which ones, any ones, all of them, where do you want to go, Eric? Let's start with the last one first. And I'm going to use this as an opportunity to demonstrate what I'm talking about, reframing it. So what did you say? You said, look at how much you can improve XYZ by adding managed futures. Right, that's what you said. Mm -hmm. So, what I'm my hypothesis is that if you invert that and you say, "All right, I've built a solid all-weather global portfolio. I want you to remove managed futures from it, and then tell me, yes, that's what I want." So you remove it, and the returns go down, the volatility jumps up, the drawdowns get bigger, and the Monte Carlo simulation looks much more fragile. And then you tell me, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. I want lower returns, higher risk, and less durability. Then we're good. We're good. I'm, I'm going to, you know, that's fine. We can make a decision to move on. But who's going to do that? Who's going to say, no, I, I definitely, a few people will, but it'll be for other reasons, right? But in the first scenario, when you're trying to talk people into adding managed futures, it's this huge uphill battle, 
reframe it and have them remove managed features and see if you don't get very different cognitive and emotional reactions from people. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that's a great idea. Of course, I know why we come from the side of trying to add it because they don't have it in the first place. But I know from a conversational point of view, you're absolutely right. I think that's a very good suggestion. So now we'll see every all CTAs going out and doing that. Well, the magic moment, I think, is, is soon upon us. One of the points you brought up is advisors are starting to be more open about investments other than just stocks and bonds. That's real. I, I feel that in the marketplace. It's mainly the bond issue. I mean, they're looking at it and saying, inflation's 3%, yields are 80 basis points. I'm charging a 1% advisory fee, and we're paying for the transaction costs and the management fee to the bond manager. I'm doing the math, and this... I, there's no way to defend this decision going forward. You know, we're talking about, you know, losing two, three, four percent a year in real terms. People aren't going to put up with that for a long time. So advisors are definitely looking at the bond. You know, for, and for these baby boomers, it's 50, 60, 70, 80 percent in bonds, all with negative real yields. No, that's an opportunity. That is a huge opportunity for flows out of that sector going forward. So Matt Kaplan, my one of my partners here at Standpoint, he brings up this really good point. I don't know why it doesn't stick in my mind, but every time he brings it up, I think that's great. He asks, what's worse, rates staying low or rates going up? Because either way, you're kind of screwed if you're a bond investor. If rates stay low, you're just essentially locking in that negative real return. If rates go up, then you experience capital losses on your holdings. So what do you think? Which one's worse? Well, in Europe, we have even more extreme negative rates than you have in the US. And I don't see yet a, a, a big kind of flight away from fixed income. Maybe it is happening. And certainly people are coming. You know what's funny? People are start, And this is, of course, probably by, by to some extent, a little bit design. But people are really complaining about the negative rates they now have to pay in the, on their bank account. Let, you know, forget about what they get on their bonds. They probably don't even know that their pension in, in, is invested in negative yielding bonds, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact that they have to pay negative rates. And so I can only, I, well, the best example is, is the country where I was born, Denmark, not where I live. And in Denmark, because Denmark is like, you know, follows the ECB incredibly tight in terms of interest rates. So we've had negative interest rates in Denmark for quite a while. And for seven years, I think from 2012 to 2000, or maybe it's from 2013 to 2020, the banks would actually eat that. So they would put the money at the central bank at negative rates, but they would not charge negative interest rates to the clients. They started doing that only a year and a half ago. And, and then they said, well, no, but the first $100,000 you have, don't worry, you'll still get zero on that. But anything above that, you'll get. Now that 100000 is down to 10000 and mm. now it really pisses people, for, sorry for the, pardon my French here, it really yeah. annoys people that they're paying negative interest rates on money they have sitting in the bank. So what do they do? And I see it on people I know. Oh, let me buy some stocks, right? Let yeah. me buy some stocks because I don't want to pay 50 basis points negative yield. You know, so I, I, I think Matt's point is very interesting. It certainly is not a good environment right now for people they're annoyed with negative interest rates or, or low interest rates and, and so on and so forth. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about on this particular issue? No, I think we've I've probably beaten this poor horse to death and just let it go. But, you know, it's I love the concept. I love the business opportunity. I love reframing stuff and, and just empowering people to make an objective, rational decision in a way that doesn't make everyone angry. 
if I have a gift, it's that. I don't know if it's truly a gift. We'll see. So I, I just, every opportunity I get to invert things and reframe them to see if you get completely opposite results, I'll take that opportunity. So sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you can think of anything else you want to bring up. In the meantime, I'm just going to do my normal review of industry performance so far this month in early June. We're up 33 basis points in the beta 50 index. In June, up 7.66%. And this is, of course, as of Thursday. And CT index up 47 bips and up 8.16% for the year. SockGen trend index up 0.19% as of Thursday for the month, up 10.02% for the year. SockGen traders index is down four basis points so far in June, up 1.46%. So far in 2021, MSCI World up 73 basis points. So far in June, up 11.42% for the year, if people were not aware of it. And bonds are doing a little bit better so far in June. Anything else you want to... I'm going to try and entice you to come back more often, Eric. I actually already sent you an email with some dates so you can consider those. Because this has been fun. This is different. This is something I think our listeners enjoy a lot to hear your thoughts about these things. Any final things you want to leave them with or are we good on this? And then we'll pick it up hopefully not too far from now. No, I think we covered a lot today. I'd rather not introduce more topics that we couldn't do a deep dive on. I think we covered a lot of different things today and probably need to revisit some of the stuff uh, in a little more detail. Yeah. So I'm good. Okay. So so to the audience, I'm going to try and get that conversation going soon again with Eric. And if you like this conversation, if you like the episodes we produce, can I encourage everyone to go and uh, leave a rating and review on iTunes because it really does help and it, it helps people find the podcast so we can spread the message. Next week, I'm joined by Jerry and uh, he is, of course, a very popular guests to have on. So as usual, send us your questions to info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our very best to answer all of them. And other than that, it pretty much leaves me a saying from Eric and me. Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back next week. In the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.